Jason Isaacs. What don't you know him from? For many, it's Lucius Malfoy in Harry Potter. For others, it's The Patriot with Mel Gibson. Me personally, I was so moved by his performance as a grieving father in Mass. And I'm so excited that he's going to be part of the cast of White Lotus Season 3, set in Thailand. In the meantime, Jason currently stars as Hollywood movie star Cary Grant in the miniseries Archie. He and I had a fascinating chat about him taking on the role. I remember interviewing Diane Cannon when she wrote that book. I worked at Reuters at the time. Then when I when I got the email for this press day, I was like, "Oh my God, they've now adapted yeah. it!" And, and it um, took that it long. Was, it took right. I mean, Jeff, probably ten years to navigate between Diane and Jennifer, who obviously have very different pictures of, uh, of, of their ex-husband dad. and uh, father, um, yeah. to find uh, something through all the creative friction and and uh, conflicting memories, a story that they're all happy telling. That mostly he was happy telling because he didn't, you know, he's a very independent voice. Uh, and that he thought was worth watching. How did you come aboard this project? When did your involvement begin? God, I mean, a couple of years ago, I suppose. uh, I found out that something was happening. I was offered the job, and I immediately thought, absolutely not. Who would be moronic enough to try and play Cary Grant? Uh, But then I saw that it was written by Jeff Pope, and Jeff Pope is a man I've admired for a long time. He has a decades-long history of turning real-life stories into great drama in Britain. Obviously, Americans know him for a couple of projects he was Oscar-nominated Golden Globes and stuff, but he's won a lot of prizes in Britain for taking political crime and and celebrity-based things uh, onto the screen, and scandals particularly. Um, So I thought, I wonder why would he have written a star treatment and and be foolish enough to put Cary Grant on the screen? And as soon as I opened the first page, I realized uh, there's a reason it's called Archie, uh, that Cary Grant was a, a fictional character that Archie Leach created to hide from the world how badly damaged, how badly scarred he was, and how... Uh, entirely unlovable, he felt. So he created the opposite, the polar opposite of who he really was and what he, uh, what his life experience was. Uh, the most lovable, desirable person in the world. Uh, and it worked. I mean, the whole, the entire world fell in love with him. Men wanted to be him, women wanted to be with him. And, you know, he was, he was the biggest film star in the world for 30 years. And all that did was make those childhood wounds wider and more open and more painful. And that felt like something that I did want to play. Uh, yeah, you'd be a moron to try and play Cary Grant or, or think that you could in any way recreate the charisma that he had on screen. But off screen, when he got offset and shut his front door for those people in his inner circle, particularly those people that he loved and married, he was a very, very different person. Where do you begin tackling something like that? First of all, you have the benefit of having reference, reference of Cary Grant. No, Brand. I Not don't. Reference of- no, you're the opposite, the very opposite, actually. <laughs> Uh, the films are useless because the, in the film, he's playing something that he wished he was. And uh, once I, I did the research, I read all the biographies and I spoke at great length to Diane and some length to Jennifer uh, and then read other biographies of people told stories about him and uh, found unpublished things, found an, un, an illicitly recorded tape of him. I put together a picture that made me realize how, how completely useless his on-screen character was for who I wanted to play. Uh, he didn't even talk like that. Uh, the voice that people think they remember, although, frankly, most people are remembering Tony Curtis's parody in Some Like It Hot. But even the ones who know how he spoke in the, on screen, they're wrong about his accent because he was more English than you see in there. That's him putting on an American accent often. But they're completely wrong if they think that he had that sense of certainty and masculinity uh, and unflappability that he displayed on camera because he was in every way flappable. 
He was very thin-skinned. He was very emotional. He was today would label him with uh, a bunch of acronyms: OCD, ADHD, mm. PTSD. I thought Diane's book was remarkable uh, when I read it and she expanded much more when I spoke to her because not only had she taken her pain and the really the mental torture she suffered at his hands uh, that drove her in the end into psychiatric hospitals, but she wrote it long enough after the fact that she could be generous in retrospect and see the fault lines in his behavior stretching all the way back to his childhood where he was so abused and neglected and abandoned and, and starving not just starved of love, but literally starving for food all the time. How interesting that he um, repeated the pattern of his own father, dr who drove his own yeah. wife who, into an insane asylum. I mean, in a, in a very different was, way. Yes, but I mean, the, the routine, the, sure. the, the, the driving someone because you're Control. so damaged. I mean, it was this different thing because his own father uh, was alcoholic and abusive and beat his mother and the mother was really horrendously depressed and he he just started up another family and he needed to get her out of the way whereas with Cary Grant his control issues and his un uncontrollable rages made Diane feel like it was all her fault or or that maybe if she did something right or different that she somehow could could uh fix him or heal him uh, and uh you know he had a long string of broken marriages behind her and many other relationships but in the end she was so uh having had everything that made her herself stripped away stripped away from her she became uh extremely ill and he sent her off with a doctor who he had briefed uh, and <laughs> horrendously inside that institution and on the way she was told by the psychiatrist the problems you're having are all because you're not doing exactly what carrie grant's asking you if you just did everything your husband told you yeah. you'd really be a lot happier in many ways it's it's remarkable talking to diane how forgiving she is and how how much she's healed i feel anger on her behalf as a father of young yeah. women, you know, to the, what she went through. But but she also had loved him and been wooed by him. She saw to his heart. And what she saw, I think, and she shared with me, is that he couldn't control it and he was broken by it. And there's a reason he took LSD hundreds of times with the therapist to try and in any way quiet the torment in his soul that came from, you know, the stretch back to his childhood, but also came from the dissonance, the, the gap between who the world, what the world loved him for and what he really felt like inside. Well, what, what did help you to tune into the character? Was there a particular thing that, like maybe the illicit recording, was there something particular yes, that made you- Yes, actually that. I mean, you, you know, well, there's two things to, to play him, obviously. There's the outside and the inside. So the outside's a bunch of craft, which is tricky because everybody thinks that, you know, first of all, <laughs> I'm never going to look like Cary Grant. I'm never going to be the guy that, as Diane continually reminded me, rather irritatingly, that walked into any room uh, and stopped it dead, where, and people just lusted after him. She said, honey, he had the most beautiful body you can't even imagine, and everybody wanted him. Designers couldn't wait to clothe him, but just undressed. He was perfect. And I went, all right, Dan, let's get back to things I can actually use, thanks. Um, <laughs> but, but nonetheless, with the help of an extraordinary makeup and hair department and these brilliant Savile Row uh, bespoke tailored suits, uh, there was something of the way he looked on the outside, uh, but I had to walk a bit like him. He had his bandy knees, and he was such a such an athletic and graceful man. He'd been an acrobat as a teenager. So there was a little bit of physical stuff to do, but the voice was making me anxious. Uh, that's the outside. But the inside is is really hard. That's what an actor does. You, you, you want to help the audience get past the fact that the outside, uh, I don't look like him or move like him, so I had to try and uh, at least meet them halfway. But then I also had to work out what it was like to feel like him. Uh, and that's actually harder, oddly. Mm, and, yeah. and 
what I re- was desperate for was a recording somewhere, just a sight of him having a chat or talking to someone. Because there's the stuff on film, which is nothing like him. And then there's uh, a couple of times that he made a speech in public. He, he wouldn't accept any awards when he had to make a speech. He just didn't. Why? And he didn't do recorded interviews. He didn't want the public to see the mask slip. He was terrified of them uh, understanding who he really was and what he really was. I don't, terrified might be an exaggeration. He just was a very private person. And he knew that in his, for instance, on screen, the women pursue him. In life, he became obsessive about people and pursued them and phoned them for months and years. And, and then sometimes they threatened restraining orders. And when they broke with him, he, he took to his bed for six months or he drank for weeks and weeks and ended up in hospital. And he was a, he was a man of enormous extremes. And that's not what he played on screen. That's not what the half of the known universe loved him for. So he wouldn't yeah. make himself available for things. And then I tracked down this interview that he'd given in the last year of his life, uh, which I'd read in a magazine, but felt like a transcript to me. And the name on it wasn't a, a journalist you could find. But through a bit of detective work, uh, I tracked him down. And he'd been a student journalist in 1986. And he'd got an interview with Cary Grant. He wrote off for some written answers. And instead, they said, if you phone this number on Saturday, uh, you can have a chat. And he phoned up. And sure enough, Cary Grant came on the phone. And he was very flummoxed. He wasn't expecting it at that level, uh, that kind of access at all. Um, and he was calling in from the university radio department. And the first thing Cary Grant says is, you're not recording this, are you? And he goes, well, I was going, no, don't. I don't want you to. It could end up anywhere. I don't want you. Very, very firmly. Uh, and so he gestured to his friend who was in the booth and said, you know, kind of cutthroat gesture, stop. And the friend nodded. And they spoke for an hour, wide-ranging conversation. And at the end, when he got off the phone, his friend said, I mean, obviously, I did record it. I'm not an idiot. And uh, when I first found him, I said, you recorded it, didn't you? And he denied it for a while. And I said, I, I, it's obviously a transcript. You must have recorded it. And he said, why are you asking? And I explained who I was and what I wanted it for. And, and he hadn't played it to anyone for 40 years, which is a remarkable thing, out of respect to Cary Grant, who he was a huge fan of. Uh, yeah. And he very generously shared it with me uh, on the understanding I wouldn't let anyone else hear it. Not really because he says anything particularly controversial, because the interview ended up in print lots of it, but because it was him unguarded. And when I heard the man, even though it was the last year of his life, he was very settled with Barbara and he, decades after acting, I heard those fault lines that Diane documents so brilliant. I heard insecurity. I heard belligerence. I heard uh, fear of being misunderstood. I, I heard... I had many, many colors that you don't hear on screen. And that was, the, that was really the last kind of piece of the jigsaw. I thought, okay, I'm ready to, I'm ready to jump in now. Still a very anxious day, the first day I went to set and had to speak. But I, I thought, I, okay, I've heard, I've heard Archie. Everybody else has heard Carrie, but I've heard Archie. Wow. And what do you glean of that? Well, I can't distill it. it you know, it, it, I, what I learned takes four hours to watch and, I, I can't separate it from the things I thought I understood about him emotionally and psychologically from all the other work that I did. But I think that he felt entirely unlovable uh, because um, he, it was an, that's an intelligent, objective assessment. He was unloved. Nobody loved him. His mother was in, incapable of it. His father yeah. was indifferent to him. Uh, his grandmother was incredibly abusive to him. But he learned that he was pretty uh, and he used that. And when he was in New York, he was a male escort. For who uh, for uh, we know for society women but we don't know for who who paid him he was desperate a lot of his life he was hungry we, you know generally do would do anything for a roof over his head and food in his belly uh which played through by the way to the fact that he he always finished not only his own meal but everyone else's meal around him when he was an enormously wealthy man had big parties if there's food left on breakfast he'd wrap it all up if 
Jennifer ever threw away a quarter of an apple or something, he'd retrieve it from the bin. Uh, he couldn't bear waste. He cut the buttons off his shirts when he was the world's tailors sent him free shirts every day um, when they were old so they could reuse them. So there's a rambling answer to what did I think I hear. I think I heard that childhood in him. I think I heard that he'd, he had a lot of money and tremendous amount of comfort. And yet still, he was still, there was some part of him uh, that was struggling to reconcile what the world thought he was and, and what he needed. Because when he made the whole world love him, he still didn't feel lovable, worth, worthy of it. And in all of his marriages, he turned them into the mother who abandoned him and made them leave him. He drove them away before they could actually leave him. He made it impossible for people to be with him. My understanding of him is that when Jennifer came along, when his daughter was born, for the first time he was able to love someone in an uncomplicated way and not want something back from them. You know, a broken person, an addict, wants more love than anyone can ever give them. But with a child, the love goes outwards. And I think Jennifer was the beginning of a lengthy process by which he found peace. Don't you think that his story in some respects is the almost like a classic, typical story of how Hollywood was founded back then? I mean, Marilyn Monroe was broken, came in to looking for this. I don't, I don't really, because I know so many people who are not in the entertainment industry, whose lives are damaged by the scars from their childhood that they never managed to heal. You don't have to be in Hollywood. Is it the Jesuits that say, give me the child before they're seven and I'll show you the man? You know, so uh, the fact is there's some broken people in Hollywood. There's broken people working in my local greengrocers as well in the supermarket. Uh, and their personal relationships and their own personal serenity is destroyed by if they don't manage to find ways to heal those scars from the past and, and break the chains for the future. So some of these people are writ large and they're the size of billboards and known the world over. But I don't think it gathers any more people than I find in, you know, uh, in my local park walking their dogs. Then, then, then that means we all have childhood trauma in, in some respect. Well, we don't we all need have it heal. as extreme. I do think yeah. we'd like to tell stories about, uh, in order for all of us to see ourselves and, and understand things about ourselves, we like to see those things turned up massively so we can, uh, so the fault lines are clearer. So he had it worse than almost anybody, and he became, he, he sought love and got more than anybody in the world had for thirty years, and uh, it didn't help. Uh, and he found it through loving us by letting go of the things he thought he needed. Uh, and God knows he searched not just by taking LSD, did a billion other types of uh, attempts at, at healing himself. Uh, and yeah. he found it through through giving love, a, a simple way. Um, I think if there's anything to learn from it, God, it's not a message piece, it's not a PSA. But today, there are so many people that we worship. There were fewer stars back those days in those days we see them through our phone we see them on television we see them in the tabloids and, and we compare ourselves through social media to all kinds of people whose lives look perfect everybody else's life looked perfect nobody posts a picture of themselves when they uh trip over in the morning or you know that they on the third day of a terrible bout of diarrhea and like nobody's nobody's posting those pictures um <laughs> yes and, all those women on ozempic are not yeah, ozempic or not yeah. posting pictures of their having diarrhea in the exactly. morning <laughs> so uh, and and there are those and there are these global icons with hundreds of billions of followers, and they really are followers. It's not just you know a technical term for something uh, on their phone. It means it, it, you know they are worshipped like religious figures, and their lives are are nothing like we think they are. And more importantly, none of us should ever feel uh, by comparison to them that we're less than them, and that they've got something figured out. So 
I, I do think it's a it's a typical Hollywood story, but it's also a typical story of many people I know in my life. Yeah, and 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 a great Hollywood story like that is the extreme version of that, and and those yeah. are the best examples in life is when you present to someone an extreme version of that, which then you extrapolate. Sure. I also and- don't think you get to be that big a star unless you really want it and need it, and you need it because something is really cracked in the mold. Now, there are many people who want it and need it and don't get it, but the ones who get there that I've met, who are absolutely at the top of the tree like that, even the ones that everyone goes, well, that's just like the guy next door, the girl next door, and that's why the world loves them. That's not what drove them there. That's not what had that volcanically burning need inside them, that, that created the volcanically burning need inside them that blazed through all their competitors and got there. Uh, there's there's something in the that there was a, a you know a, a a nuclear toxicity that that made them seek what they thought was something that would heal them, and uh, of course it always does the opposite. Yeah, it's not uh, a fully formed human being that's totally Buddha at peace. Going, I want to be no, the biggest star you, in Hollywood. I don't have any friends in the acting business uh, who <laughs> uh, who at least when they started out were completely. Uh, <laughs> You know, balanced and serene, you wouldn't do this job unless you were seeking some answers to, to things that had disturbed you in life. But do you find those answers in playing parts like Archie? No, you find them. If, if, well, it, uh, as with Carrie Grant, if you're looking for answers, if you're looking to fill that hole inside yourself with other people's love, uh, you're really fucked. Uh, but I, I think I have found and understood an awful lot about who and how I am and how I can be me better by walking in other people's shoes, definitely. Mm. It's one of the reasons I think that schools get their syllabuses completely wrong. We're still concentrating uh, on on an agenda from the Victorian age when they were looking for clerks in factories and kids don't spend anywhere near enough time exploring the human condition, how to listen, how to react, maybe uh, role play and understanding, creating empathy and sympathy through drama uh, and the arts. That's why the arts are so important. But also, speaking of antiquated ways of, of schooling, they also don't teach kids how to run businesses. They teach kids how to be worker bees, how to well, work. Well, that's true. And, uh, how, yeah, how to you be know. an entrepreneur, how to be in the real world. It's very little yeah. skills. Uh, yeah. Sort of how to be in the real world. Yeah. yeah. Well, are there any biographies? Because I consider this miniseries a, 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 a autobi- you know, a, a biopic. To an extent. I mean, you, you know. yes, no. I mean, I understand why you would say that, and I, and I can't think of any other way to describe it, but you know, the man lived to be 82 years old, and, and almost any week of his life could make 10 hours of, of good television. And so yeah. I think what Jeff Pope did so cleverly, Jeff Pope, a writer, is uh, because Cary Grant, towards the end of his life, decades after giving up as an actor, did these occasional nights at the theatre where he just sat with the microphone and chatted to the audience. Uh, And because he had a stroke near the end of his life, he's created this framing device, which means maybe you're not really watching him on stage aged 18. Maybe this is the fever dream of a man in the last throes of, you know, uh, close to death, who's recalling just some of the pivotal salient points of his life, which is why characters from his past appear in the audience or walk across the stage. And so it saved... uh, the audience and us, the creators, from having to do a this, then this, then this chronological yeah. story, you know, because he had five marriages, he had other big relationships, he had a big career, and many, many shifts. And uh, and Jeff just found a bit that he wanted to focus on, this bit where his daughter came along, how he found and wooed Diane and had a daughter. Uh, um, also but wouldn't Paul... him being on stage make him uh, give the, that facade to, to a chance to crack that he so feared doing, you know? 
Well, he hadn't been an actor for 20 years when he first did it. He did it just stepping in for a friend who was sick first time. Uh, and he thought his films were trivial and forgotten. His wife didn't watch them. His, you know, his new young wife yeah. didn't watch them. His daughter didn't watch them. Uh, and yeah. he really, uh, people didn't recognize him that much anymore. And he was very happy and actually very successful at business. Um, so when he stepped in, I think it was quite fun for him to just, he got mm. cheap laughs. He liked any laughs. He was always funny. And he maybe didn't get a yeah. chance to do that anymore. And he was a bit yeah. thrilled that some of, quite a lot of people did remember him. He was surprised yeah. how many people yeah. remember him. Uh, and it was kind of an indulgence. It wasn't his job. He didn't do it for money. Yeah. Um, so what we do in the miniseries uh, and how he is on stage is far more uh, vulnerable, make him far more vulnerable and revelatory than he was in life. He didn't, mm. he didn't get up there and use it as therapy and try and, yeah. and try and think he could help the audience through their own emotional difficulties. But because he had a stroke, uh, it gave us license to do that. Mm. I thought Paul Andrew Williams, the director, did something very clever as well. A, a lot of the times when people from the past appear in the audience or walk past him, or even during the scenes when I'm suddenly talking to my young mother, not old mother. Yeah, yeah. Those are all yeah. the director's flourishes. They weren't in the original yeah. script. He kind of messed oh, with yeah. the timeline. The way that we do in life. I'm talking to my... My daughter came the other night to, to see me. I'm in New York and she's studying nearby. And um, there was a moment when I was looking at her seven-year-old self. She said something that echoed across time for me in my head and and were we filming it, you could set the seven-year-old in front of me and I'd have the same yeah. conversation. So I thought he did that rather cleverly in the shoot. The moving part for me when he, with the mother when that happened was when he had taken her out of the asylum and, and she's in the car with him and he all of a sudden just says like, I'm so, like, what was it? I'm sorry, yeah. I didn't get you out sooner. I didn't know or something. He put, that's right, because Paul put the young actress in. He also yes. did something else, which yeah. is occasionally say, let's just do a subtext run on camera which means say or, you know, say or scream or shout or cry, all the things that you're holding back. And I might or might not use them. So it was a very creative shoot. I had no idea what was going to end up in the edit. We did a lot of crazy stuff. But, uh, and he used just moments of it here and there, rather judiciously. But anyway, so my point is that all that stops it being, yeah. to my mind, a biopic, because a biopic comes with these tropes that you've got to do the beginning, yes. middle, and end in that order. Yeah, yeah. And we miss yes. out four wives, for instance. Yes, but, but the miniseries gives you such a deep dive. I mean, the last biopic that I saw that really was an interesting deep dive was Maestro, the the one that's, that's oh, out right now. Yeah, I'm really looking yeah. forward to it. Do you like it? Yeah, I, I did. I, I did. Just they really did dive into and there's fever dream aspects of it, too. And right. and I I thought it was quite brilliantly done. And um, I was wondering if you had seen it because. Uh, no, it, no, I haven't seen yeah. it. Yet. I, I was I, during this round of publicity. I've been asked a lot about uh, Bradley's fake nose. I'm like, I have no opinion. I haven't seen it. <laughs> I was also asked about whether non-Jewish actors can play Jewish people. I'm like, absolutely, because I'm Jewish and I hope to God I don't only play Jewish people in the future. So <laughs> anybody can play anything if they get away with it and make it good. That's that's a simple rule. And that's one of the reasons you get into acting, right? Because you want to, you could Sure, I didn't that. want to play myself. In fact, the very opposite. Uh, yes. A bit like Cat Grant, but with less trauma in my background. I wanted to be anything but me. Your Harry Potter character uh, does not exist in real life, so we, you'd be hard pressed to find someone like him to play him in the movie. I don't <laughs> so think maybe... that's true, actually. Yeah. I don't think that an old money, uh, old fashioned racist with a ludicrous blonde hairdo is very hard to find in America right now at all. Actually, I stand corrected. You're absolutely right. <laughs> I meant in that fantastical world. I know, of, but it's a very yeah. thinly disguised analogy for uh, for. You yeah. know, bigotry and the rise of the right and Nazism. And, uh, yeah. and Lucius Malfoy is right in there as a craven, cowardly bully with absurd blonde hair. It's almost like Joe had a, a portal into the future in yeah. the 2016 presidential election. No, you're, ab you're absolutely right on that. We're living in just really 
terrible times. Terrible times in so many ways. I mean, they are horrendous times. Is it that we know and we watch daily uh, news of it and we're aware of everything? And, we, and those of us who are empathetic or sympathetic can picture ourselves there more than previously. Was there as much death and destruction and war? Yeah. Are the weapons bigger? Are we more aware of the, it's, it's actually consequent possible danger to us and our lives? I don't know what it is, but I do feel these dark, dark clouds gathering and, and oppressing me at least. Yeah. Uh, but you know, it's not about me. There are people. There are people having truly yes. horrendous uh, yes. times, and yes. we're just we're witnesses. But you can't help. Yeah. Like when somebody you love dies or you lose a parent, it's a horrendous loss. But you also feel yourself on the conveyor belt, slightly closer to those fiery doors. Uh-huh. And uh, yeah. Yeah. the world is in uh, horrendous freefall, and lots of people are suffering awfully every day. But you also somewhere at the background, as a kind of cello note, is well, this could spread so easily and it could be us any minute. Yeah. As an actor, do you believe that you need to be vocal about that stuff or do you believe that actors should just act? I mean, that's the, the, the you know, there's always that debate. Yeah, well, I, so I'm an ambassador for various different charities and I try and, I've seen their work on the ground. I try and raise money and awareness for it. Uh, and I have got involved in politics uh, a lot, political issues around elections to try and counter Trump's narrative, for instance, and in Britain to work for the Labour Party. But when you raise your voice on uh, a lot of issues and the place to raise it is online, social media, it feels almost entirely pointless. All that happens is you open the gate to tsunamis of, first of all, who knows how many of them are human, there may well be bots and algorithms, but of people who are living so, uh, so much inside their own bubble and are so polarized, all they're looking for is an excuse to uh, spew uh, hatred and, and judgment. Uh, and almost every issue is not binary. In fact, most issues are very far from binary. Uh, but it's the, online is not the place to, to look for nuance or real discussion for me. So I've withdrawn slightly from uh, the amount that I used to do because although you're giving comfort and support sometimes to people who are in environments where no one sounds like them, I open my phone and my computer having said something about uh, an issue I care about and there's thousands of people, tens of thousands of people that would like to kill me, uh, yeah. either for my views or just because I was born Jewish or, or whatever the hell it is. So um, I tend to uh, try and see where I can be useful. If there's a campaign and I think people should phone their member of Congress or member of parliament or they should sign this petition or this thing needs money, then I'll use my platform. But otherwise, yes. it, it, it feels like it's just not doing anything anywhere. So I've been yeah. to visit with the Red Cross and to visit Ukrainian refugees in Poland, for instance. And I think that generates money for the Red Cross. Yeah, and I've seen yeah. the work they do on the ground. Mm. But but the other stuff, I, I have very strong opinions, obviously, about many things going on in the world. Why do I? Why would I put them on Twitter? Why you know? Why would I put them on Instagram? Uh, um, I don't know. It's, it it, it yeah. becomes complicated. I haven't posted anything for quite a while um, since October the seventh, since the Hamas attacks, uh, because whatever I post just opens the door to. It certainly doesn't. Uh, open the door to discussion or uh, any kind of movement towards peace or ease for anybody. I appreciate Love you giving me the time. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much.